Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel according to Luke as we continue our studies through Luke's Gospel. We come to preparations for Passover in chapter 22 and verses 7 through 13. While you're turning there, uh, let me extend our appreciation to the Cherub Choir and their leaders. That was just beautiful tonight. Thank you so much for that lovely music, praising the Lord. Gospel according to Luke, beginning chapter 22 and verse 7. This is where Luke writes. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you there a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. This is God's holy inspired and an errant word. May you write its words on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that just as we were reminded this morning, you have breathed out your holy word for our use, for our correction, for our training, for our instruction in righteousness, so that we might be complete and competent and equipped for every good work. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us as we study it tonight so that we might apply it to our hearts and our lives so that we might be not only hearers of the word, but also doers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the movie and book, The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the wizard comes to visit his friends near the beginning of the book in the Shire, uh, where the hobbits live. And on the outskirts of the Shire, he meets up with Frodo, who's been waiting for him for a while, and Frodo kind of teases Gandalf. He says, you're late. And Gandalf replies with mock sternness, a wizard is never late, nor is he ever early. A wizard arrives precisely when he means to. Well, Tolkien always downplayed the Christian symbolism of his books. He always insisted they weren't allegory, they were just fiction and fantasy and to be enjoyed as such. But I always hear, at least implicitly, something about divine timing in that conversation between Frodo and Gandalf. Wizards may or may not be late, but certainly God is never late, and nor is he early in his providence, but he always unfolds his perfect providence exactly as it is meant to be unfolded. Though we get impatient often with God's timing, I know I do, It's because I don't have all the information. But he alone is omniscient, and he will infallibly bring events to pass in their proper sequence when the time is absolutely perfect. Well, there's definitely a divine timetable unfolding in Luke's gospel here. As we continue the accounts of Passion Week, we come to the most significant of all the Jewish feasts, the Feast of Passover, Passover, of course, commemorates the Jews' exodus from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus is on the cusp of reenacting the Passover 
in a way that transcends its original meaning, in a way that far surpasses what it meant to the Jews initially. He does this, we're told by Luke, on the day of unleavened bread, verse 7. But Jesus is about to fulfill everything that Passover signifies, and he'll move redemption history forward by great leaps and bounds in an unprecedented way, in a way that's never to be repeated again. Now, all of that sounds epic and even cosmic, and it is, but Jesus is also never less than practical and even earthy in the way he carries out tasks with his disciples. He's here busy preparing for the Passover feast. He wants to celebrate it with his disciples, and to do that, he deputizes two of his disciples to carry out very detailed instructions. He wants to celebrate with them one more time before he gives his life as a ransom for his people. So two points this evening. First of all, a Passover meal prepared. And secondly, the Passover lamb prepared. So first of all, a Passover meal prepared. In about a month, my home will be very much like your home, an especially busy beehive of activity. My wife and daughters will be scurrying all over the kitchen, preparing the ham and stirring up the rice and baking the apple cake. And I'll be making Kroger runs for coffee and for canned pineapple. And the boys will be taking out the trash and pushing brooms along and so forth. And why is all that activity taking place? Well, of course, because a uniquely American holiday will be upon us, the Thanksgiving feast. And that doesn't just happen, does it? It requires preparation. Stuff has to get done beforehand. So everybody's on task getting ready for Thanksgiving. Well, Passover is a uniquely Jewish holy day. And all good Jews are making ready for it on the day before. And so there's a to-do list to ensure that Passover goes off smoothly as it should. And Jesus takes charge here and he employs his trustiest two disciples to get busy with those preparations. And so we see Peter and John, and I believe they're contrasted very intentionally with Judas here. While Judas is out doing his dirty deeds under the cover of darkness, Peter and John are given this important task. In verse 8, Judas is decidedly not trustworthy, but Peter and John are. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, Jesus knows that very, very shortly, Peter is going to deny even knowing him. Even so, he considers Peter and John worthy of this important errand. Why? Well, because our Lord, you'll remember, has prayed for Peter that his faith will not fail and that when he has turned back, he will strengthen his brothers. And for that reason alone, he entrusts Peter with this task because He knows that his own prayers will be answered for Peter. And this is no easy job to prepare the Passover at this late date. But it is necessary. Luke tells us it must be. The Passover lamb must be slaughtered on this day. This would be considerably harder than finding turkey and dressing at Kroger on the 11th hour on Wednesday, November 23rd especially in Jerusalem, because every Jew is going to be doing the same thing. 
Peter and John will have to stand in line at the temple where the priest prepares the lamb, where he drains the blood from it, where he roasts it over the fire, and where he gives it back to them for their use. Bitter herbs have to be secured. Cups need to be secured. Unleavened bread, residual leaven has to be swept out of everyone's home to symbolize that sin must not be allowed to have its leavening effect in our lives. So Peter and John ask a very practical question of the Lord in verse 9. Where, Lord, where, where do you want us to do this? It's a very tall order at this point to find a suitable location in Jerusalem because thousands, if not millions, of Jewish pilgrims were milling about. So you'd have an easier time booking a hotel room in Augusta on the first week of April. And so the question where, verse 9, is a very sensible question. And Jesus gives a very sensible answer in verses 10 through 12. Jesus shows that once again, he is well ahead of them in their questions. He always is. I always find myself in prayer asking God logistical questions like, Lord, how about this? And, and, and what about that? And, and Lord, are you sure this is the right time for this challenge? Well, of course, the Lord always knows in advance, but he wants me Hezekiah-like, to spread it all out in his presence and, and work through it, work through the details with him. And so Peter and John say, where, Lord, where do you want us to do this? And Jesus rolls out his plan in answer to their question. He said, verse 10, behold, or look, or pay attention, guys, or like my coach in high school used to say, look at me, boys, when I'm talking to you. Listen to me and, and pay attention. He tells them to go into town, and you'll find a man with a jar of water. What Dale Ralph Davis calls a water-lugging fellow. And he's going to lead you into a house, and you're going to tell the master of the house, the teacher says. Now let me stop there for just a moment, because listen to the way that Jesus self-identifies as the teacher. Not as the miracle worker, not as the healer, but as teacher, and not just a teacher, and not just one of the chief teachers, but the teacher. The ESV is quite correct in the way that it, it capitalizes teacher. It's, it's pointing out the singularity of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the teacher to end all teachers. You'll remember that Jesus told his disciples, let's go on to the next town so that I may preach and teach there, for that is why I came. Jesus came for a variety of reasons, but absolutely paramount among those reasons is to preach and teach the kingdom of God. So he is the teacher par excellence. He is the, the ultimate teacher. No man ever taught the way this man does. The question for us, of course, is, is he your teacher? Do you have a teachable spirit in the words that you hear from Jesus' mouth in his word? Do you say to him merely, Lord, Lord, or do you actually do what he says? Do you let the Lord Jesus have the final word on any subject to which he speaks? What is it that the teacher requests here? Well, he says in verse 11, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Goes on, he'll show you a room furnished with reclining couches, and that's where you'll dine. Now, Jesus obviously orchestrated all of these events in advance. But how did he do that? Was it supernatural? Was it a miracle? Well, some think so, 
But the matter-of-fact way that Luke tells us leads us to believe that he simply did it and arranged it beforehand by ordinary means. He carried out all the logistical details. And so this water guy, verse 10, was a signal. They're to follow him. And then the question that they are to ask, verse 11, is a password for the master of the house. So Jesus initiates all of these logistics in advance so that the disciples can whip up this meal and they won't be interrupted. It's an example that the Lord Jesus always does well. Also, perhaps, though Judas thinks he is pulling one over on Jesus, the Lord is keenly aware of his treachery. He smells what's cooking in the kitchen, so to speak, and he is two or three steps ahead of Jesus. So instead of announcing where the meal will be and thus tipping Judas off, he arranges for the disciples to simply follow this water guy into the house. They won't even know where the dining room is themselves until they have to know. So while Judas is dying to know where Jesus will be because he wants to earn his blood money, Jesus keeps it from him through this. So even while being betrayed, the Lord is still very much in control of what's happening to him. He is no hapless victim in this. He is taking the initiative in events that will culminate in his own death. But he's doing it on his terms, you see, not on anyone else's. I lay my life down on my own accord, he says. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. And it's astounding, isn't it, how calm and composed Jesus is as he's doing this. In just hours, he will be absolutely brutalized, not even recognized as a human being, Isaiah tells us. But he's serene, even celebratory. He's preparing to to dine with his disciples. He is absolutely in control of the whole situation, delegating tasks out to his disciples. He's the embodiment of Isaiah 26.3. What does that say? Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. I've been guilty of reading that before and thinking, really, Lord, perfect peace? How in the world can I stay at peace with this storm raging in my life right now? But we see Jesus doing it, looking at what he's facing, and yet at perfect peace, even joy in this moment with his disciples. If you need help, Achieving that perfect peace in the midst of the storms of life, as I do, look to Jesus and ask him for the help that you need. And see if the things of this world don't become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus knows the horror that's awaiting him, and yet he is intent on observing this Jewish feast with his best friends and to connect it with something far more astounding to come. When Peter and John complete their errand, guess what happens? Well, they find things, in verse 13, exactly as Jesus told them they would be. Anytime Jesus sends us to do something and we carry out his instructions exactly as he tells us, even when we don't completely understand those instructions, every single time we will find things exactly as Jesus said they would be. Jesus speaks with absolute authority on any subject to which he speaks, so he can be trusted implicitly. John in Revelation tells us he has a sword coming out of his mouth. His word is incisive in its p 
piercing as a weapon of truth, and it's able to slash through all the, the lies and uh, the, the nonsense linguistically of our own times. So Jesus speaks, and, and when they hear his voice, new life the dead receive. He, he speaks with authority on the subject of marriage, for example. I know from experience that when Jesus' instructions on marriage and his example as a servant are followed, then marriage thrives. And when those examples and that instruction is neglected, marriage shrivels. And we could fill in the blank. Everything that Jesus speaks to is reliable and authoritative and able to be trusted. So the Passover meal prepared. Secondly, the Passover meal. I'll get it right in a second. Number one, the Passover meal prepared. Secondly, the Passover lamb prepared. On one level, the Passover meal is being prepared and the lamb roasted and the bitter herbs secured and the wine purchased and the cups supplied and so forth. The room itself is furnished, we're told, verse 12, with reclining couches and so forth. But far more significant than that is the, the fact that the Passover lamb has been prepared for all eternity for this moment in time. And it is just as much a divine necessity as the Paschal Lamb being slain. The Lamb of God without blemish has come at this moment in time to die an atoning death for his people. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so we open not his mouth. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Peter tells us that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. The Apostle John identified him for us, didn't he? When he said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't just come to die and then immediately be sent back into heaven. He came first to live in perfect conformity with the law of God, the the law that we transgress constantly. He obeyed every precept and he avoided breaking every transgression. He had to be the lamb without blemish. What does that mean? He had to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. It means his true worship stands in place of my idolatry, in place of all the graven images that your heart has ever bowed down to. He is the image of the invisible God. In place of all the times that I have misused God's name, he uttered, Abba, Father, with absolute purity on his lips and purity in his heart. As Lord of the Sabbath, he rested and he worshiped and he performed works of mercy perfectly in place of all my restlessness and half-hearted devotion and my insistence on making the day all about me. He honored his father and mother in place of all the times that I disappointed and embarrassed and dishonored mine. In place of you wishing your enemy dead, as we all do from time to time, he was never so much as angry with another person without cause. 
but prayed for his enemies as they were killing him. In place of our lust, he loved older women as mothers, women as sisters, and younger women as daughters with absolute purity and respect and affirmation. In place of your thieving, he gave and he gave and he gave some more, not even withholding his own life. In place of our hedging and equivocating and prevaricating and outright lying, he always spoke the truth in love to every person he met. In place of our coveting what's not ours, he didn't even insist on using what was rightly his for his own selfish advantage. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Having achieved all righteousness then, he was not just in theory, but actually in human experience, the lamb who was without blemish, uniquely qualified to be our mediator, ready to lay down his life for us, to ransom us from slavery to our sin. So God is never, ever late, my friends. He is never, ever early. God arrives precisely when he means to arrive. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit covenanted together in eternity to solve man's sin problem for him. And in this passage, we see Jesus, God in the flesh, having been prepared as the Passover lamb from all eternity, ready to carry out the plan of redemption by becoming an atoning sacrifice for us. And he does it calmly, he does it serenely, he does it with perfect peace on the night before he is crucified. Because it must be done, it must be done. As he prepares to celebrate the Passover with his friends, right before he becomes what the Apostle Paul calls our Passover lamb, sacrifice for our sins. Passover was a family meal, of course. It was meant to be experienced and enjoyed within a family context. But these men had all left their own families to follow Jesus. In other words, they just joined another family, and it was his family. It was the apostolic band of brothers, and Jesus was head of this new family. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus was asked. Looking around, he said, these These are my mother and my father and my brothers. I'm sure you've experienced that unique family bond that exists between any two believers, anywhere you find them, anywhere in the world. It's a special thing, and it transcends all differences among us. In a world in which identity politics seems to be increasingly winning the day and splintering people into groups based on race and gender and political party and competing to see who is the most oppressed and therefore the most virtuous. What an opportunity it is now for the body of Christ to show that despite all differences among us outwardly, we are united around the table of our Lord Jesus. Despite all differences in our background and our DNA and how we look and how we act, we are a family of faith. A dear brother in Christ who has moved away but affiliated with this church reached out to me this week and was very 
gentle and, and polite about requesting something from the church, but he said, I don't want to impose. I said, brother, it is not an imposition. You and I are brothers. This is the body of Christ. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is a beautiful thing to be part of the family of God with Christ as our elder brother and our Passover lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, how grateful we are that the Lamb of God was prepared to be our Passover Lamb for all eternity. We are grateful that we are a body of Christ, a family of faith, united around the cross and around the empty tomb. We're thankful that you have seen fit to include us in your family. And we ask this prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.